beautiful people. This is www.flashblackradio.com. Culture Shock. I am Da Vinci Parks, aka Lee Bennett the Third, and today I have the pleasure of bringing in a friend of the family, quite literally, a uh, friend of my family, um, also a friend, also fellow Howard alum, and we'll get into that later on, I'm sure. Uh, but I'm bringing in one Miss Jennifer Barefoot Smith. Uh, and Jennifer Barefoot Smith is actually, um, she's been a part of the Boston public school system for over 10 years. She's born and raised in the Boston area. She went to the Boston public school system. But again, we'll get through all that. So let me just uh, just go ahead and cut all the, the fancy I do, all, all the good stuff and all that, and just bring in Jennifer. What's up? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Apologize <laughs> uh, for the, the, the crazy intro. <laughs> No problem. <laughs> a lot going on my end. There's not really a lot going on my end. I'm just like a little absent-minded right now. I apologize. So how are things with you? Fine, you get a pass. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. I'm fine. I'm fine. Seniors have graduated and they're gone, so I have peace now. So life is good. That's what's up. And you actually deal directly yes. with seniors, right? I do. So now I have a nice little break. Too bad I can't not go to work, but you know, that's fine. I'll go there and look at the walls and clean up and not deal with crazy children so that's a beautiful thing that's what's up so actually let's get into that a little bit or whatever so let's let's get to know you on the professional side first and then we'll work back the other way uh what exactly do you do with the boston public school system um i've done quite a few things but currently i am the college counselor at a high school a small high school a small pilot high school Mm -hmm. um and a pilot high school or a pilot school in boston is um, something specific in our district that was created a few decades ago, um, whereby people could propose sort of an alternative type of school. Um, One of them, for instance, is an arts school, um, Boston Arts Academy, where they have a completely different curriculum and they teach, um, you know, music, theater, vocals, uh, dance, etc. So it's just a place where you could pilot, quite literally, a different idea. And um, because of that, the schools that are pilot schools have curricular autonomy, um, as well as a few other differences from a standard public school. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are part of the public school system. We are part of the teachers union. We um, have most of the same basic, you know, we get paid the same and we have the same rules, um, same schedule for school. Well, we do work extra hours for free, but mm-hmm. we have a, a bit of a longer day. Welcome um, to teaching. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we I work for free anyway, so right, yeah. so really, um, it doesn't bother me. But some people don't like that, um, and some people say, you know, it's kind of a problem because in other schools, you know, the, I work 150 hours extra a year compared to other boss public school teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the regular day. Not that's not the extra thousands of hours I work on my own for free, but <laughs> that everyone does. But um, the school day, actually, three days a week, I have extra time. But the point is that the school can do things a little bit differently. Um, my school's not radically that different, um, like how the Arts Academy is literally completely different. Obviously, they're having art classes and dance classes in the middle of the day, ballet and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, pilot schools do can do things a little bit differently. So, for instance, in our school, you can't pass with a D. You have to have a C-. minus. Nice. Um, in our school, you... Uh, you can't um, graduate without you. We have extra graduation requirements. You have to do a senior defense, which is a 10 page research paper 
um, and then you have to defend it in the presentation. And I also have a role in, in that when I'm done with the college counseling process part. Um, I'm, I work for the last couple of years. I've worked with the kids on the, um, the senior defense writing and researching and presenting part. Next year, I'm going to be doing something different because we're expanding to a middle school. So in the afternoon, I'm going to teach Spanish a couple days a week um, to the seventh graders, but and then be doing the college counseling the rest of the time in the morning. Um, so we can also kind of, I suppose any school could do be creative with their staff, but we can also do things like that where I can be a college counselor in the morning and teach Spanish in the afternoon type of thing. Okay. Um, so we'll see how that goes next next year. But in, in the past, I taught middle school social studies in other Boston public schools. Um, one was also another type of, uh, sorry, another type of pilot school and the Mm, the one, the other one was a regular, well, it was a regular Boston public school in that it wasn't a pilot school, but it was specifically a two-way bilingual school, which means everyone learns both languages. And in this school, the two languages were English and Spanish mm-hmm. and has all their content classes in both languages. So I actually taught social studies in English and Spanish to the middle school for six years. And that's also the school that I went to when I went to the Boston public schools as a child. Um, nice for my kind my kindergarten through eighth grade. Nice. So that's a little bit about my history in BPS. Okay. Okay. So give us a lot of information. So we're going to try to unpack a couple things. First and foremost, <laughs> um, one of the things I'm curious about is first of all, the pilot program to me sounds remarkably similar to what I know as in, in the DC um, metropolitan area as what we refer to as charter schools. I, I, I'm, I'm assuming so, that they're not mm-hmm. the same, but similar. Can you? Can no, you... we also have charter schools in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have now in the last couple of years, something new called in-district charter schools. Um, I don't know a whole lot about them, um, but I'll tell you what I sort of understand. Um, our regular charter schools, again, like I think any other charter school in the nation, is a school that somebody says, I see this need, some difference. They go to the state not to the city. They go to the state board, as far as I understand it, and they request a charter. Um, You know, every state and then within that municipality, I think, has an amount that they're allowed to approve. And um, there's always stuff in the politics here in Boston and Massachusetts about lifting the charter cap. Mm -hmm. But I believe that Boston or Massachusetts or whatever, I guess I only can speak for Boston, but I believe that we are close to or at the limit. Um, and so that's, I think, why it's a political issue, because people want to raise it so that more charter schools could request um, charters. But at the moment, I think we're at capacity or close to it. that or no one's asking for it. I don't know. Either way, there's not new, there's not any new charter schools that I know of happening. Um, but we do have quite a few. Um, some, I think, are very successful from what I hear. Some are not. Mm-hmm. Um And they do have longer school days. But what I would say is the distinction the big distinction for me, one, they are not part of the union. They are not part of our collective bargaining unit. Unit. Mm-hmm. They do not have to pay them the same as they have to pay us. Um, they do not have the same protections and rights that we have as teachers in the Boston public school system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I would say that's um, different about them is that they have, they control their own application processes mm-hmm. and I don't know that anyone can prove it, but as we all know, charter schools do make um, decisions about who they let in and who they don't, mm-hmm. and also who they push out. 
Um, and I would say that that's no different in Boston. Uh, we get kids from charter schools at our school. Um, I've heard from parents and from students and from colleagues similar things. They don't do well with their special ed population. They don't do well with, um, well, if they have a special ed population, right, because they tend to not want to take those students and or tell those families that they can't service them, whereas the public schools, including pilot schools in Boston, have no say over that. We have special needs students of all levels, including some of the most severe, um, and we must take those students. It's not a choice. Um, we cannot tell those students that they can't be in our school. We cannot tell those students that we can't service them. Now, in an extreme case where we actually can't service them because we don't literally have the facilities to service them, that's a different story. But um, we can't make them feel as though we don't want them there and can't service them because the reality is we can't. We have to have special needs teachers and we have to service them. That's, you know, it's public education. Uh, it's for everybody. It's not special that some people get one thing and other people get something else. Um, so I would say those are the big distinctions. And then lastly, in our school district where we still have buses um, for some grade levels and for certain things, um, the charter schools, because they get a charter for servicing the entire city, can then be considered one zone. And in our city, we have multiple zones. And you can only go to school within your zone mm -hmm. because it's expensive to bus people halfway across the city. Mm -hmm. um, however, charter schools, because they are one zone, and then each charter school is its own zone because they're all separate schools, they're separate quote-unquote school districts, now can bus kids, they can have a bus with two kids sitting on it to get them from one neighborhood because to wherever they are, on the other side of the city because every kid has to have an opportunity to go to that particular school. Um, and that in terms of a imbalance in um, fairness in terms of the city to me is problematic because we can't do that in BPS. A parent can't say, well, I want to go to this school on the other side of the city because it's better or because I like it or whatever reason, if they don't live in the right zone, there's no bus to take their child there. There are very limited schools that are what we call magnet schools. Mm -hmm. where you can go from anywhere in the city to that school. Mm -hmm. But those were more popular when I was a child, and they've been phased out almost entirely except for maybe, I think, two schools. Um, however, the charter schools are not like that. They get to get their kids bused all over the city. And the, the problem I have with that personally is that I don't know how this happens, but Boston Public Schools has to pay for it. So... <laughs> Our money pays for two kids to sit on a bus to get across the city to their school. But we can't do that for BPS students. But we can do it for charter school students. In fact, we are required to do it for charter school students. The yeah. other weird thing in Boston is that we also pay for the buses for the parochial students. And I don't know how that got worked out however many years ago. But that's another weird thing that we have in Boston, that we pay to send Catholic kids, school, Catholic kids to school on buses. Um, my understanding, and I, I, again, I don't know exactly, uh, how things differ because, you know, Boston is one area, obviously, and DC mm -hmm. is an area much, pretty far away from Boston, obviously, and politics are different. Um, but my understanding was at least with DC public charter schools and things may have changed. Um, it's been some time since I had any involvement with DC public charter schools, but it's my understanding that they're still a part of the public school system. 
They just have, with this charter, have the opportunity or the ability to be able to raise additional funds outside of what is publicly allotted to that school. So um, each student basically no. has a so that's cost. different in Boston. Yeah, and again, that's what I'm saying, because you have, you're, you're already telling but me. But also, telling... I worked in charter schools in D.C., and mm-hmm. I was not part of the D.C. public school system at all. Okay. So that's not, I would not say that. So, for instance, in Boston, I'm part of the teachers union. I'm part of the medical insurance. I'm part of the state retirement system. Um, so I'm part of everything that a public city employee is part saying. of in I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. When I worked in D.C. at a charter school, I was not part of DCPS. I was Mm -hmm. not part of their union. I had a separate health insurance. I Mm -hmm. had uh, everything was separate. I see what you're saying. The money. That's what I was. I was was speaking strictly to the money. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was. The money does drain drain the public school system in Boston, just like it does to DCPS. Yeah. That's what I was speaking to. Um. Yeah. But the but the in terms of teaching for a teacher, it's it's very it's very separate. Okay. Um, and public schools could raise their own money separately if they knew how, if they knew how to um, set up a, a, you know, a charitable fund. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, a, the school that I went to and then taught at as an adult um, has its own nonprofit organization that has, has board, it has chair members, it has parent involvement. It's called Friends of the Hernandez, and they hold fundraisers and raffles and school activities and outside of school activities and they are their own entity, um, you know, and I don't think they make a great deal of money, but they are able to raise funds and they use it to fund like the after school program and things like that. Um, they can do what they want because they've done it as a separate legal entity that they've set up financially um, and they run it separate from the school. But obviously it's to help the school. And I think charter schools have been very successful at doing things like that. But I don't think there's any law that public schools can't do it. It's just that it takes some work to set up and you have to get a really strong community to do it because they have to run it. The school can't run it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are adept at creating a strong community, um, then you too would be able to do something like that. I think the difference in charter schools is sometimes they have funders that are backing these things and doing it for them. Um, whereas the public schools I know that do them um, are kind of doing it in a grassroots way. Okay. So, um, Really quick question, and um, if you don't have an answer, if you don't feel like like you know, you don't want to mm-hmm. get into it. But I mean, very quickly, do you do you feel like um, do you have first of all, does Boston have an issue? And I would imagine most places do, especially when it comes around to like you know, shift in political powers between like Democratic and Republican parties and stuff. Um, oh, we don't like, shift between the parties. Oh yeah, I know. So as I was going to say, just but Democratic. Okay. There's no Republicans. Okay, so but so not enough to vote in a leader like a like I mean there's people who are Republicans, but Republicans haven't won anything in Boston that I don't yeah, they that's don't the, even run. Like the ballot doesn't have an opponent that's Republican sometimes. Oh, okay, so my my question it's just a bunch of Democrats running against each other. Okay, so my question was going to be though, with regard to is there an issue in terms of redistricting or anything like that that affects how um, money is allotted or how trans, um, you know, zoning is, uh, uh, is there anything like that in terms of redistricting or anything like that that causes issues in your estimation? Um, so as you're probably aware, because it's sort of like the infamous part of history that people pay attention to without knowing anything about Boston currently, uh, we, we had more than a little bit of a problem during busing. 
um, in the seventies here in Boston. And because of that, I would argue, um, politically redistricting, zoning, busing, anything even remotely connected to that is wildly, um, dangerous politically in Boston. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of actually protected it from redistricting because no one wants to touch it. Um, people are very hands off. Secondly, we had a very sort of, I guess you could call it stable because it's long term, but I don't know. We, we had the same mayor for most of my life. So mm -hmm. he was elected in 1993, I believe. And he passed away. He retired like a year or two before he passed away, which was maybe three or four years ago. So from 93 until 2000 and something, 12, 14, 15, uh, we had the same mayor, um, okay. which is a pretty long time. Mm -hmm. So, um, and people seem to be pretty satisfied with him for most of that time. Um, you know, he was elected when I was in middle school. Right. And mm -hmm. he retired when I was a teacher, 10 years into teaching. So um, I would say that most people were happy with him towards the last, at least the, at least the most of the, his term, if not um, definitely the end of it. Uh, he was very, very popular. One of the highest ratings, I think, probably ever. Um, and I don't know how often he redistricted. I know when I was young, um, redistricting was a big issue. I remember going with my mother as like a six or seven year old to city council meetings and school committee hearings downtown. And I can remember the graphs of the city with lines and people explaining it. And I didn't know what it was about. I just knew that I was there because my mother was there to yell or support or whatever she was doing. I don't know. But <laughs> um, I just remember maps. And I remember the superintendent, Dr. Laval Wilson's little black guy trying to explain it. And I don't know if people were happy or not. I just remember that I was there and there were maps and there was a lot of discussion over it. Um, and then I remember it changing maybe one other time, maybe two other times in my lifetime. So it hasn't been redistricted that often. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the zone, the changes have sort of been more, I don't think they've been too controversial. Like they turned the entire high school into one zone mm -hmm. and they just said, it's all equal. There's a lottery. You know, you don't have to go to your neighborhood school for high school. Everybody gets a bus pass for the, you know, for the, the public transportation. Mm -hmm. And if you want to go halfway across the city, you go right ahead. If you want to go to the school down the street from your house, you go right ahead. Uh, as long as you can get in in the lottery. Right. So um, which is computerized. So they're they aren't really worried about that part. I think that takes down a lot of the controversy because um, it isn't an issue of high school. My students come from all over the city. My school has moved from one neighborhood to another while I've worked there uh, just because we got a better building when the city was moving, shifting things around. And we still have students from all over the city, right? So um, from lots of different neighborhoods. And I think it's more of an apparent issue in elementary school. Um, I certainly see it as an issue, especially for gentrification and for young urban white families. Um, that feel like only certain schools are good enough. And if their kids don't get into those particular schools, then they move out of the city relatively early. Um, when you go around and you see open houses, you'll, you know, see like, oh, it's a two bedroom. Hmm, that one bedroom has that changeable crib 
thing that is now the bed for the, you know, toddler and hmm, okay, well, right about right on time, four, five, six, six years old, oh, time to move, right? So kid didn't get into the kindergarten track that you want them to be in. So you're now going to move out to the suburbs because you have that financial ability um, that other people in the city don't have. The caveat to this is that we do have some rules within the zones and the zones are really big. We have three zones for a huge city. So they are cut in a way that is supposed to grab swaths of poor neighborhoods and wealthier neighborhoods into each zone. So for instance, if you look at the map of Boston, there is one of the more wealthy neighborhoods um, that's on the outskirts of the city at the edge, closer to the suburbs, um, and has several of these schools that mm, people would consider good schools. Um, they have cut that neighborhood in half. So if you had run the zone on a horizontal axis, that neighborhood would all be in its own zone, favoring all those families who have more money to live there and tend to be whiter. But instead of doing that, they purposely zoned it so that they cut it um, perpendicularly, which sliced that neighborhood in half, making and, and, and the schools that are in it in half, putting half of them on one side and half of them on the other. And then the upward part of that perpendicular runs into some of the poorest neighborhoods. So kids in those neighborhoods also would have the ability to go to those schools in that wealthier neighborhood okay. um, and vice versa. Okay, the so difference is that when those parents in those wealthy neighborhoods can't get assigned to a school in one of the poorer neighborhoods, that's when they can make that choice to leave. Whereas obviously a poor person can't. Okay. So what I want to do here is I actually want to do a little bit of a pivot now. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel like if I was to move to Boston, man, I know who I need to talk to about education. If I have a child. Uh, <laughs> I would agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually want to I want to backtrack a little bit, and um, I want to backtrack because um, I want I want to get to to talk about you a little bit. So first okay. and foremost, I want to know. Um, where you grew up specifically in Boston, you don't have to get super in-depth in detail or whatever, but mm -hmm. a little bit of your background and um, how that upbringing and coming up where you came up, how that informed you as the person mm -hmm. you are now. So I grew up in a neighborhood, it's the biggest neighborhood in Boston, so it kind of doesn't give you anything specific, but I grew up in a neighborhood called Dorchester. Mm -hmm. Um it's our largest neighborhood. Most of our neighborhoods only have one zip code for so the whole neighborhood. Dorchester has probably five zip codes. Mm -hmm. um, so that gives you a bit of a perspective. So I grew up in, in, in that neighborhood. Um, I went to school in a different neighborhood called Roxbury. Mm -hmm. um, and my school was like my second home. So I guess maybe for some people that wouldn't matter, but um, I would say that's important for me. And my school was actually on the Roxbury Jamaica Plain line, literally. Um, the line ran up the street my school was on. So the other side of the street was another neighborhood. Um, and that neighborhood is sort of like one of those changeover neighborhoods. When I went to school there, it was bad, but now it's become the neighborhood that they're starting to gentrify. Um, and just for background, gentrification, although if you read a newspaper or an article or a chart, people would say that Boston's extremely gentrified more than other cities, et cetera. Um, when you look at perspective as opposed to actual like numbers, you'd realize that that's actually quite false for a claim. Boston is only now becoming um, affected by the type of gentrification that other major cities have, be have been affected by. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say that in terms of like how, when I come back to DC and I see completely different people walking around 
all sorts of neighborhoods. I mean, around Houston? And when I see, <laughs> you know, when I see white people in shorts and pipe parking their bikes to get in line to go to a barbecue joint at 10 o'clock at night, right off North Capitol, you know, it's like with, with the crackheads across the street scratching their head in the park, like, they on my stoop. Like, I can't stay in the way. Like, this doesn't make any sense right now. Mm. Um, we haven't had that until very recently, and we're starting, it's ramping up. Um, what we have had is an extreme amount of development on the waterfront, which was empty, mm-hmm. like empty land. No one lived there. So when people do statistics and um, charts and maps, they say Boston has been gentrified at a higher rate and percentage and everything like that. Um, but when you look at the map of it, there was no one there. You didn't, that's not what we, when we, gentrification is a concept with numbers, but it's also a concept of what it feels like and what's happening. And most people are thinking about the concept of what it feels like and what's happening. That feeling doesn't exist. It doesn't match the numbers in Boston because it wasn't happening the way it was happening in DC and Harlem and other places in Boston until more recently, because they were developing places where no one lived. So you weren't dispossessing anyone because no one cared. The other caveat to that is they were developing and dispossessing people in the infamous uh, poor white neighborhood of South Boston, Southeast. which is the neighborhood that was Southie. That was the neighborhood that was stoning the buses in the seventies and trapping children inside of schools and all of those things. Right. So um, ironically, they were pushing poor white people out. So gentrification again in Boston has not felt like it has felt in other cities until recently. They are now moving into neighborhoods that are of a different color. And um, now we're starting to feel that whole hipster, where'd you come from vibe um, that everybody else has been feeling for years. But it has, it's just, it's slowly been getting to Boston because it happened, excuse me, it happened first with um, Southie and uh, the empty waterfront district. Um, and now it's moving out into the neighborhoods. Okay. So it's a little, it's a little bit different. So the Dorchester that I grew up in, um, was on the front end of the changeover from white flight from the seventies. So, um, the white flight that happened in Boston after busing was like every other city in America, quite, um, drastic. And it coincided with the, entrance of slumlords, crack epidemic, um, housing crisis, economic crisis of the late 70s and early 80s, and slumlords burning down their own property to get insurance money and all these things that were happening in all of the major cities in the Northeast, right? Mm -hmm. So you have that happening and you have white flight happening and, um, and you have immigration. Boston is a city that is, I mean, it's basically for people who don't realize Boston is like New York City, except obviously much, much, much smaller. We have immigrants of everything. I mean, everything. My neighbors growing up were actual gypsies, like Romanian gypsies, which it's not politically correct to call them gypsies anymore. But when I was growing up, that's what they called themselves. That's what we all referred to them as. So my neighbors were actually Roma people who, you know, had lots of family members living in one apartment, did not work regular jobs they did other things and they have a small community here in boston and i don't know somehow they were my neighbors and i used to sit with the old lady next door and play with her granddaughter and that was the one person in the sixth family house next to mine there was irish people who literally spoke irish or gaelic as some people call it incorrectly um who had just come over from ireland um although we do have lots of historically irish americans in boston Mm -hmm. we also have lots of new irish immigrants in the 80s um dominicans Poor white people, black folks, Haitians, 
um, we have the second largest Haitian population in the United States. Um, so outside of what Miami Cape Verdeans. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's, okay. I think it's Miami, Boston, uh, New York. Okay. So, um, uh, we have Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Dominicans. We have a huge Vietnamese population that started in the coming in the mid nineties. Um, my, my, my clinic that I went to has changed over. It's, it's, it's all, it, the phone answers in English and the second language is now Vietnamese. Um, when it asks you what you want to push, um, Polish immigrants. Um, I mean, you can find a church in Polish, Portuguese, Italian, French, Creole, Cape Verdean Creole. I mean, I could go on in Boston because we just have so many people who are immigrants and who have maintained their culture and their language and their, their food and, and, and all of that stuff. We have a big, um, Ethiopian Eritrean population, not as big as DC, but we have one. <laughs> um, and so, West Indian people, so very West quickly. African people. So, so this is the, this is who I grew up with. This is the community that I grew up in. And so, then I went to a bilingual school. Okay, so very quickly, let me, um, let, let me let me just mm-hmm. ask, let me just ask this because I, I I don't think I'm the only person who's heard what I'm about to say. And when you said the gentrification uh, uh, issue was really starting to set in and take hold in Boston, uh, not necessarily surprised, but I never looked at Boston, honestly, as a gentrified city, so much as I looked at it as one that was very segregated. Um, people, they, it's very like caste-based from my understanding. And I'm, again, I've never actually been to Boston. I actually, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to going to Boston. I would say it's very segregated. I mean, in the way that every city that has a large population, like D.C. is separate because D.C., well, until now, <laughs> D.C. was all black. So that's, it was, you know, it was It was majority black, yes. It's 65, 70% right. so black. The few, the few white people that live there, they had an area they lived in. They certainly didn't live everywhere, you know, <laughs> on the other side of the river, yeah, right? Yeah. So uh, they do now, um, but hey, there's so, still some places so, that it's still chocolate though. <laughs> it's diminished, right, but well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still no. some places so, they ain't they ain't, they ain't pushed things. in yet. Boston, Boston, life. In my opinion, like every city, Boston is very segregated. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, uh, my my exchange student in high school from Spain when she came here, and she stayed in Boston, and then we went to New York City um, within days of her coming to the states. So she she hadn't stayed in Boston longer. Like she got to Boston and a few days later we went to New York city to Washington Heights um, to stay with a friend of mine and just sort of the natural things that she and I were pointing out um, at the end of two or three days, her first couple of days of being in the U S what impressed this girl the most or what, what called her attention the most was that everything was segregated. And she was like, well, you've pointed out like where the Italians live, where the black people live, where the Spanish people live. Like, she was just, it, it, that's what jumped out to her. And we didn't even know we were doing it. You know, we were 15, 16. We just thought it was normal to say, oh, well, this is Washington Heights. All the Dominicans are here. This is this place. That's a little Italy. That's this place. That's this place. Right. And um, the same thing in Boston, I guess, as we go around places, I'd be like, oh, this is the Polish thing. And that's the Italian neighborhood in the North End. And that's this thing. And she's like, why is everybody separated? Now, granted, in Spain, they don't have different colors. So she, mm-hmm. you know, has nothing to say. They're all Spanish. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think just the way that we think in the United States overall, because of immigration and race and everything else, those things are high on our mind and we point them out um, because they are a big part of our life and they are not necessarily a big part of people's lives who live in majority, whatever, white or black countries. 
right? So mm-hmm. in a majority black country, nobody cares. Like, oh, that's where the random small population of Syrians live. Like, whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they don't, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't matter. Um, whereas in America, quote unquote, the country of immigrants, it's something that we think about a lot and we talk about a lot. Um, whether proud or not proud, right? And I think that um, for me, I like it, but maybe other people look at it as like, why, why aren't people, why do they have to live there? And we had to say to her, well, it's not that they have to live there. It's just where Dominicans live. It's just where Italians live. It's just where Greeks live or whatever we were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a natural process of immigration. People come to where other people are and they stay with the people that they're familiar with because that's where their connect, their networks of jobs and understanding and community and everything else are obviously. And so then they keep bringing more people and that builds up a small little group in that area. And so I think self-segregation or just segregation out of logic, or that's just kind of how it happens is natural. Um, You're going to go and live where other people, you know, live, and then you're going to keep building from that. Um, I think what gives, there's two things that give the impression that Boston is overwhelmingly white and not very diverse. Um, One, it used to be certainly, and it has all of that historical imagery um, of angry white people uh, harassing students during DSEG in the 70s. Um, And two, we do not have a gentrified or or a middle-class black and brown suburban community like other um, metropolitan areas do. So Mm -hmm. the difference I see in D.C. is that when you go outside of D.C., it's all still black. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just D.C. that's Chocolate City. It's the surrounding area, obviously, with the exception. Right. I'm not saying the whole circle Mm because, that you know, there's a chunk where it's not black. Mm -hmm. But there is a big chunk outside of D.C. for a long while that you can go to where these suburban areas are still pretty much either mixed or predominantly black. Mm -hmm. And I think in Boston, as soon as you leave the city, that's it. Right. And I do mean as soon. You drive over the line into the next town on any given part of the circle of Boston, and there are, that's it. Yeah, but you are moving, and we're moving into some of the wealthiest cities in the state of Massachusetts. Right. Immediately after walking, stepping out of the city of Boston, because they've been there for three hundred years. But it's but, not. It's not just that image though that I was referring to. Like for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it goes beyond that, and it's and it's a, you can get this from watching uh, a Scorsese movie. You can get this from well, uh, yeah, that's the other one I was gonna say. All the media, yeah, 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 films but, that have been made highlight those particular cultures. They're all about Southie or Charlestown, or, or, or so. you know, Irish immigrants and all that good stuff. So right. yeah, but which but is a small fraction of the city, that, and that's honestly. fair. But there's also just the this the like you know I've talked to enough people that have lived in Boston. Uh, I had an uncle that lived in Boston for a while, and mm-hmm. there there's this 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 common thread. Like there's certain places that if you're a certain complexion <laughs> certain ethnicity if you if you're there after a certain time whatever it could go down for you and this is like you know in the 70s and i would agree with that in the 70s and the 80s yeah, and yeah. i would also say that that's pretty much anywhere in america yeah okay i mean and that's the thing like i and you like with che and all these other people in your little comments about boston being the most racist city and my argument is not that Boston isn't racist, because some people came out saying like, oh, we're not racist. It's, oh, shut up. Well, yes, we are. Everywhere is. My argument is that we're not more racist or less racist. The whole, we li- hello, who's the president? Like, where is this misconception that somehow America has pockets of not racist? I need people to stop that foolishness because that's dangerous. 
when you start playing this game of like this place is more racist than that place or I'm not as racist as somewhere else, you're trying to then qualify you're not addressing it. the issue. Yeah, you're not right. trying to... When you start qualifying it, you get to be like, well, see, I'm good. I'm not racist. It's not racist here. We don't have to address anything. Oh, that actually, you know what? You know what? That actually brings up an interesting... interesting uh, That's the problem. Yeah, no, I, and you're I, not fixing it because you feel you're exempt. Yeah, yeah. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. And actually, mm-hmm. you bring up a, uh, an interesting... An interesting um, point. Um, a couple weeks ago on uh, uh, Shit You Might Have Missed, um, uh, the weekly show that I do mm-hmm. with The Usual Suspects, um, we had a brief conversation about Jason Whitlock um, and some of Jason Whitlock's commentary regarding LeBron James. And, um, are you familiar with who Jason Whitlock is? I have no idea, so I was just going to ask you that, that's cool. who that is. That's cool. Okay, so... <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so Jason Whitlock is a sports commentator, uh, writer. He, he, okay. I believe he started off with writing first and became a sports commentary personality. He was on ESPN for a good him. while, and then now he's on Fox Sports One with Colin Cowherd. And um, Colin Cowherd, in my it's opinion, Chinese to me, but okay. Huh? No, 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 no. What I'm gonna, what I'm, what I'm gonna get to. <laughs> What I'm going to get to, you'll be able to relate to, and I'm pretty sure okay. you'll have commentary on. So, um, okay. just I'm, and I'm I'm doing this also for background for the listener as well. So, gotcha. um, I'm going to Google Col- him while you talk. That's cool. Colin Cowherd um, has, in my opinion, said a lot of things that are troubling and problematic anyway. But when Colin Cowherd sounds like the more reasonable voice in the room, and Jason Whitlock is just going off, so like in this particular uh, incident, instance I'm talking about, um, LeBron James James's house in California was vandalized, and somebody yes. spray painted the word "nigger" on his front gate. Now that I know about. So Jason Whitlock, who is a black man, or at least you know, reportedly, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> Jason oh Whitlock. I'm gonna have to really Google this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jason Whitlock pretty much made an on-air argument that LeBron James is too rich to feel racism, and this is not the type of racist. Wait. This is not the type of racism that we need to stamp out. So when he said that, it's like, it's like it's, he said so many things that were just egregiously, like just just terrible. You know what I mean? But like he said, this it's is okay. not if the you type make over of like two like two million dollars. People can do just whatever they want to. You. It's okay. No, but the idea that he That's said this is not like, the type what, of like, racism we need to stamp out. Like, wait a minute, wait, wait why, why did why are we why are we identifying specific like racism in general just needs to go. We don't need to start right. dicing racism up and deciding what we need. Get rid of all of it. Like, like, why do we need racism right. at all? Why are we having this but, conversation? Well, that's the same thing that I'm saying about this whole, like, this place is more racist and less racist. And it's all, who cares? It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be racist, period. Right? <laughs> why are we having this conversation? Right. So, okay. So let, let, let's use that as another opportunity to, uh, to transition. Okay. So you grew up in, as you've, you've just, uh, you so know, I grew just... up in Dorchester and Roxbury, predominantly black Hispanic neighborhoods of Boston, not necessarily the safest areas in Boston, especially in the, the years that I grew up. They are becoming sa- They have become safer. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, two children were shot Monday and Tuesday night. So, you know, um, it doesn't yeah, you still go feel down. better that it's safer statistically than yeah. it was when I went to school. You know what I mean? Like, so that's whatever. But um, yes, and I went to a bilingual school from kindergarten to eighth grade, which means that um, my school had to, we all had to learn Spanish and English. So I'm fluent in Spanish. My teachers were, for the most part, um, Hispanic women from Caribbean islands, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Cuba, a few exceptions. 
a few Central Americans and some other things, but that's the accent that I have. Um, that's the culture that I was taught. The school didn't just teach us language. It taught us everything. Imagine having 20 mamas teaching you about them, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of my um, academic and social upbringing at this school um, that was like a fan, that is like a family. Um, and the teachers were friends. My mother worked there. The teachers are friends of my family. The children that went there have gone generations of family, you know, kids. I've taught my friends, kids and nieces and nephews and cousins and godchildren. And it just cycles all around. And it's, it's one big um, community. It's, it's kind of different. Um, I could say I'm friends even before I worked there. I was friends with my teachers um, or almost like family with my teachers um, from there and the principal and, and everybody else. And um, very close knit and very culturally sort of um, it, it sort of encapsulated the culture, taught us culture, made us very, feel very at home. Um, and the majority of the school was black and Hispanic, not um, white. There was quota system at that time in the 80s in Boston. So schools had to maintain in, in from the DSEG order, um, schools had to maintain certain quotas of of, of each race. And my school, because it was a bilingual school, was able to have a higher quota of Latinos just because of the purpose of the school to maintain Spanish for those students who were native speakers. But then it also was open to other people who wanted to learn Spanish who weren't native Spanish speakers, um, blacks and, and whites. And we had like a sort of a 25%, 25% quota, but we never filled the quota for white people. So it was mostly like maybe 10% white and then the rest black and Hispanic, majority Hispanic. And again, I think, you know, part of that is, is that's cultural quota, not, you know, because you have black Hispanic people and light and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the school environment and the family environment that I grew up in in Boston with people from all these different nationalities that I was, you know, referencing earlier. So, um, so how, how did you feel transitioning from eighth grade into high school? Can you talk about the, the, the difference and the, the change? Yeah. So, so first of all, because your um, your listeners, would you like me to tell your listeners what they don't know about me? <laughs> By all means. <laughs> so because your listeners don't know who I am and you've mentioned that I'm, uh, a fellow Howardite, they may be confused. I'm not black. Um, I am, my family, uh, my father came from a country called Newfoundland, which is an island in Canada that's now part of Canada. But when he lived there, it was, um, like many other places, part of the British Empire and sort of left to its own devices. Um, so it has its own culture, um, a lot like the Caribbean, uh, but white people and cold and no seasoning in the food <laughs> um, because it's up north. But they have an accent. My friends growing up would ask me what language my grandfather spoke. And when I told them English, they would look at me like, no, really, stop playing. What does he speak? <laughs> and I'm like, no, really, it's English. You just can't understand him. Um, so my father was born there. Uh, and so were six of his, him and, and, and five siblings. And he came to the States in the 50s. Soon after, it became part of Canada. Um, but they don't consider themselves Canadian because they were not part of Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother's family is my, well, her father is my only American side of the family. Her um, her mother's from Poland mm-hmm. and um, her father is from Oklahoma. So he's the American part of my family. And as far as I know, I don't know his family well, um, but they, I believe their roots go back to, you know, like three, 400 years revolutionary war type 
longevity in the United States and part of his family's Cherokee. Okay. So goes back longer than the Revolutionary War, obviously. Um, so that's sort of my background. Um, and then I went to this bilingual school where I learned Spanish and I learned the Spanish culture. And I picked up Spanish with an accent like a Dominican or a Puerto Rican. Um, and I learned all the music and the food and the expressions and the culture and all these other things. And it um, is something that's just a part of my life. I didn't think about it. I was five years old when I went to school and um, it became a part of me without me understanding what race and culture was and certainly what race and culture in this country mean and how they're looked at. So I didn't know that it was a little bit strange for most people that there was a little white girl running around singing and talking in Spanish and doing these, you know, participating in these cultural things. Um, plus I came from a family that was not American. Um, I grew up in the same home with my father's family from Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they had the biggest impact on me. Um, the American part, I, uh, for my grandfather, I saw him once in a while and I've never, I never saw his family in Oklahoma actually until he, I never went there until he died. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I didn't know anything about them. And then my mother's, my, my mother's mother, Sorry, I'm referring to them that way and not grandparents, as I don't use the words in English for grandparents. It's my babchi, which is Polish for grandmother, and mm -hmm. my jaja, which is Polish for grandfather. Mm -hmm. um, but people wouldn't understand that. So uh, my, my mom's mother's family speaks Polish, and they live in New England, but um, I didn't see them as often either. So it was really the Newfoundland culture uh, was part of my life, and it was very different, different food, different um, way of speaking, and so when I went to school with people and I was learning another language, that all just was normal because I was already used to things, you know, there being multiple languages and accents. You are, you are already nimble. Doing things. You, right. You, you and then it, it wasn't it, like it was one more thing like, oh, you have this. Well, I have that. And you speak that and we do this. And so when you, you know, when you have a Jamaican and an African that speak English differently, it's, we it's just like, okay, well, yeah, that's like at home. We, you know, people can't understand my grandparents either. Like, yeah, you know, that's, we have this food that ain't nobody heard of but us. Right. So like it all just kind of made sense to me as a little kid. And it wasn't until I was in middle school that I started to recognize all of the different issues in this country, mm -hmm. um, historical and, and social and otherwise. And then for high school, I um, went to something radically different. So I came from this grassroots public school. It was founded for the purpose of educating Hispanic immigrants whose kids weren't. It was actually founded because. Hispanic kids weren't going to school in the 70s because they didn't understand, they didn't speak the language, and their parents didn't know how to even enroll them in school or how, how public school here worked. And so people went out, community organizers went out and knocked on doors and led these Spanish-speaking parents through the process. And it was, you know, years before we had everything in triplicate form in seven different languages. So um, they really argued to say we need to have a bilingual school for these children who can't access the academic system until they learn English, but that doesn't mean that they can't do math. They're mm -hmm. intelligent. They just don't speak English. So they can do math if we teach it to them in Spanish, which they already understand. But so basically that's how the school was founded. And it has, it still to this day has that very grassroots feeling of we're going to advocate, fight for ourselves. I mean, since I was a child, I was going to hearings at the state house on English only and bilingual education and basically saving bilingual education. We've been fighting that since I was a child and it still hasn't let up. So I went from that kind of a community, a very small community, my middle school class was 25 children, mm -hmm. um, to one of the most prestigious private schools in the country. Um, and I didn't know what I was walking into. It was just that there was a Saturday program there when I was in fourth grade that I had been recommended to where students from the school don't actually attend that program. But mm -hmm. 
kids from all over the city and the state can go to it. It's like an enrichment program. And I loved it. It was great. It was fun. A couple hours on Saturday morning, you did some fun different courses, and it was really interesting and interactive. And that was my impression of the school. I went to Milton Academy for high school. Um, And so for those who aren't familiar with it, it's basically, if you think of the Ivy Leagues, it's sort of in the equivalent of like the Harvard, Princeton, Yale type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Milton was number three when I went there in the country. So it was like basically like Princeton. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and you had it has a boarding community. Um, you had people whose parents ran the country who ran the state, um, who had more money than God and, you know, radically different, um, environment from what I, where I came from, um, you know, from very, uh, you know, poor family. My dad was a construction worker. My mom was a secretary. Nobody went to college, uh, walking into a school where everyone not only went to college, but knew exactly where they were going to college and what their legacy and their family was, uh, very few people of color um, attended the school, although for these types of schools, it had some of the highest numbers of students of color in these types of schools, which mm-hmm. in and of itself is problematic and sad. But um, so I went to one of the most diverse of these horribly not diverse private institutions. I did not live on campus. People always ask me that. Um, it's not far from Boston. It's in the next town over. So I uh, took the train um and, and went to school that way um, okay. from my from my neighborhood from Boston. It, it's not, you know, it's like an hour by the time you switch all the trains and get the bus and everything else. But it's not it's not far in the car. It was 10 minutes from my house. So um, but it was a whole different world and it was complete culture shock. So your original question um, was, you know, how did I feel in that transition? Um, you know, obviously I was smart enough to get into the school when I applied. Um, and I applied because of my familiarity with the, um, with the Saturday program. And I think the reason, if I remember correctly, that I applied was because, um, the options that I had in Boston. So apart from all the other things I've said about the way the city works and the, and the zoning, um, for high schools, we have three exam schools, which are like the separate, um, if you take the exam and you pass, then you can get in and they're sort of special and fancy and renowned and blah, blah, blah. And one of them is one of the oldest public schools in America. And it's also a very good school. So um, I got into Latin Academy, sorry, all three of them, Latin school, Latin Academy and the O'Brien technical school. Um, So that means I could have picked any of them to go to. And I visited them with my mother and I did not like them. Um, For the same reasons I didn't end up liking Milton Academy, but I didn't, realized what I was, you know, yeah. And, and I knew they, I already had that feeling of what they are because throughout the public school system, of course, I knew, you know, oh, this is when all the white people who haven't sent their kids to school in Boston from kindergarten to eighth grade, have them take the test. And now they flood back into the, to these test schools. That's the only part of the school system they're in. Um, because the Boston public school system is like overwhelmingly people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, even when the city wasn't like, I mean, the city right now is something like 51% people of color. Um, but I'm sure in the eighties, it was not that high. Mm-hmm. Right. Or the nineties when I was going to high school. So, um, but yet the test schools were overwhelmingly white, um, compared to any other school. Uh, I've taught in BPS for over 10 years and I can count the number of white students I've had literally on my hands. Um, so, and my mother's been a secretary for decades, and um, I don't think she had a white student until I remember her coming home and going, 
there's a white student in the school. And I was like, there is? She was like, yeah. And I was like, wow. And I mean, that was the, she'd worked at four or five schools and that was the first school she'd worked at that had um, a white kid. And she was just like, oh, I've never, oh, wow, I've never had a white student. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so, um, because she worked in neighborhoods that were predominantly black um, and Hispanic and, and at schools that were not very good um, at times. And so she certainly didn't encounter white students in those schools. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, going to Milton was literally the, 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 the most polar opposite you could get from how I had grown up unless I had grown up in another country, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, to, to Milton Academy, people with the most amount of privilege, um, more white people that I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and I mean, the black people as well were a culture shock to me. Like they were, there were a few people who were coming on scholarship from the cities, um, whether it was Boston or New York city or other parts of the country and who came from similar backgrounds like I had, but even a lot of them had gone to like prep programs that helped you prepare for this type of school and get you into this type of school. Um, and so they kind of knew what they were walking into a bit more. I literally had no clue. Um, the, what I knew was my cousin who lived, who had left Boston when we were like eight and moved to New Hampshire. And I just, you know, thought I had this crazy cousin that lived in New Hampshire that talked about weird stuff and listened to weird music. And I was just like, you know, that's my cousin. She's lover. She's strange, but you know, she's my cousin. I love her. Then I went to Milton. I was like, oh no, she's just white. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. And like, it kind of dawned on me, like, it's not my cousin. That's, this is white people. Like, oh, that's what this is. Didn't, didn't, never knew that. Um, So I just really didn't have that knowledge. I didn't have that experience of what white American culture was Mm -hmm. until I got to Milton and I was like, I was taken aback. I was shocked. And then on top of that, rich white American culture. And then the also, you know, wealthy black people in the Jack and Jill culture. And I was like, this is all of this is a whole new world to me. Like what in the, what is going on? Right. So I was on every type of tailspin cultural shock you could possibly think of um, wrapped into one plus the academic workload, um, you know, which I was fine. I was able to do it, but it was, you know, I went from a kid who watched 50 hours of television a week, got straight A's, ran every program in middle school, did everything, you know, didn't have a yearbook. Okay. I'll make one. Like didn't have a school dance. Okay. We're going to get the teachers to let us have one. Didn't have this. Okay. We're going to get it done because I didn't have anything else to do because school was easy for me mm-hmm. and, you know, got my homework done in 20 minutes and then walking into Milton Academy to like, Oh, I am now going to sit from as soon as I get home at the end of the day at three thirty until I fall asleep at night at 11 or midnight and do homework every single day for my entire freshman year. And, you know, it was like I hit this wall and I couldn't, you know, I didn't speak to my friends because I couldn't. They knew they learned really quickly that I was too busy um, that with school and not to call me. And so I, I was really literally cut off because I'm an only child and I lived in a house without any other children because my grandparents lived downstairs. My uncle lived on the middle floor and we lived on the top floor with just me and my parents. Um, I was literally cut off from social everything, um, except for what was at Milton. And so it was, it was crazy. It was like, what in the world is going on here? And so, um, I mean, the black folks, if we could, if we all had lunch at the same time, maybe on a good day, we took up one and a half lunch tables, maybe, Mm -hmm. but most lunch days, it was, you know, me and the black people at the black table, like 
It was a black table and me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that of course included the like two Dominicans and um, maybe the Mexican kid. But um, you know, there wasn't, and that was the best in the private schools in the in in, in the country, right? That was the best diversity numbers. Um, I think a lot of their numbers came from um, Asian students and um, kids from overseas as well. But still, uh, the the Black and Hispanic population was extremely small. I think my class had a lot, and out of a hundred and 160 or 70 kids, we had maybe seven black kids, including the two Dominicans, maybe. Um, and that was, that was the biggest class. Um, so it was, it was a complete 360, you know, just most radical thing I probably ever experienced. Hmm. So this in a way kind of <laughs> further help you I, I identify where you identify <laughs> I guess this helped you so 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 I mean I already grew up with black and Hispanic people and that was really you know what I knew um what I was comfortable with and that's not to say I'm I'm very comfortable with my own family's culture it's just that there's no other new fees anywhere like there's the only people I know from Newfoundland are my family. There's, mm-hmm. there's not, it's not like we're a big population or, you know, group here. Um, and I also don't know any Polish people, but I don't see my Polish family that often. Um, and so, you know, I never grew up in a household that used the word American to refer to ourselves. And I think a lot of immigrants that probably would resonate with a lot of immigrant um, families. So as a first generation American, I don't, American is not something that I even think about. Like I don't, it's not, it's not a culture I identify with. I don't really know what that culture is per se, but it's not something that I think about. And, and most people in Boston don't either. Um, American for me and for my students, for me growing up and for my students today, still 20 something years later, it's the same concept of Boston. And I know a lot of people who come to Boston from other places and especially get irks, like they get very vexed at the, the, the black, populations here who sort of, as they would say, refuse to say that they're black. And I don't know is that they refuse to say that they're black. It's just that it's not the way that people think mm-hmm. here in Boston because we have so many immigrants. And so it's not that a Haitian doesn't know that they're also black. It's just that black means black American mm-hmm. and Haitian means Haitian, right? And white means white American. But a lot of our kids actually wouldn't consider, they'll consider Irish people white. But for some reason, they don't know that all the rest of Europe is white. <laughs> and it is very puzzling to me. I'm not sure why. I mean, even though I grew up with it, too. But I guess I knew that those people were white. And so I just figured it was the way that we talk, like how we say Spanish people, but we don't actually mean people from Spain. We mean Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. And yes, we know it's incorrect, but yeah. it's sort of just what or we they, say. They speak Spanish um, and like they're less like... <laughs> right. And, 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 I, and I correct the kids all the time, too. And I'm like, well, we don't call Haitian people French. They speak French, right? So like, obviously, we know like that's, that what we're saying is crazy. And then kids will be like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right, miss. But then they'd be like, yeah, but whatever. You know, Spanish people. And so... <laughs> And, and again, yeah, for whatever, students whatever, whatever. and people in Boston, Spanish people does not mean Mexicans. Mexicans is something else because we don't have a big Mexican population, right? And, mm-hmm. and we haven't had a big Central and South American population until recently. So for us, Spanish people are literally Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and, mm-hmm. and maybe Cubans on a, on a, you know, depending on the population on the day. So they also often will be like, oh, what's that? Oh, they're, you know, like 
Armenian? Oh, well, that's not, you know, oh, you're Armenian. Well, you, you're something, so you're not white. So in Boston, white is when you don't have a culture, when you're not something, when you're American. That's white, oh, right? And, um, and when my kids, when we have, like, cultural days or, you know, celebration whatever days, um, you'll see those two and three black Americans, and you're like, oh, what do you have? And they're like, I'm just black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're all sad. They're like, I'm, I'm just black. And that's literally a category in Boston, just black. I don't think that really is, exists anywhere else. But that's that happens because we have such a large immigrant population and generational West Indian immigrants and things like that. So that we I have kids who they've never been wherever, but they are repping Barbados till they die. They are repping Montserrat or whatever it is like that is. And it's it's been maintained by their family. The values are there. The culture is there. It's been told to them that is how they view themselves. That is who they are. And so whether or not people in, you know, Barbados, Jamaica, Trinidad, whatever, look at them as, as that or as Americans, because they're Americanized, these people, these children think of themselves even two, three, sometimes four generations ago, they will still tell you, oh, no, I'm not American. I'm not, I'm not American. I'm not black. I'm Cape Verdean. I'm, I'm Dominican. I'm Jamaican. I'm whatever. Um, and some of them, it's not that far removed, you know. I have 60 to 80 kids a year, depending on the year in the last six years. And on any given year, I have at least 11 to 15 kids who weren't born in the U S. So, um, you know, we, we, our immigrant population is constantly renewing itself in Boston. Um, and so we have that sort of like a, no, 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 like they, they, we get it, but black Americans who come to Boston that I know who have come for, um, school or work have always sort of been offended. They were like, why do these people keep thinking I'm not black? Why do these people keep thinking I'm this and I'm that? And I'm like, well, because in Boston, we have so many other cultures that when you have somebody who's, we don't, black Americans in Boston, yeah, you have light-skinned black Americans, but not, I, when I went to Howard, that is the first time that I saw so many light-skinned black Americans that were so to the point that you could pass. Like you read about passing in history class in Boston, but you don't understand how it could happen <laughs> because you've never seen anyone who could pass. Right. So you, you, you're like, okay, I mean, I'm reading it, but I guess, I don't know, because you haven't seen that genetic variation in black Americans. You've seen that genetic variation in Dominicans, in Cape Verdeans. Right. So we've seen it in the populations that we have here, but we haven't seen it in our quote unquote, just black populations. And so it's, it's hard. It's hard for people here to conceptualize of that. Um, just like it's hard for my students to conceptualize that people think there's no black people in Boston. They're like, what are you talking about? That's all this in Boston. And I'm like, but they don't know that because they see the town and the departed and whatever. And they don't see not near one black person. So if you look at those things, you wouldn't know there was any black people here ever at all. And if you come here for work and you live in a suburb, you might think the same thing. And if you come here for school, the schools in Boston, the universities, the renowned universities in Boston, first of all, Cambridge is in Boston. That's a separate issue, MIT, Harvard, et cetera. But if you come to the Boston schools, BU and BC, they are literally, BC, I don't even know how it maintains that it's in Boston. It literally has maybe 30 feet on the Boston line, maybe, of grass Mm -hmm. at the front gate. The rest of that entire campus is in another town. Mm -hmm. It's not in Boston. Right, yeah, and you know, Washington Redskins, the Washington Redskins, you know, play in Maryland and they practice in Virginia. So, I mean, you know, right. uh, you know, it's, 
It sounds yeah, good. but see, people in Boston don't think of that town as part part of Boston, and you know, DC people don't think of PG as part of DC. Oh yeah, I know. That's they why I was very you. specific about saying that I'm from PG because yeah. a lot of people be swelling saying that they're from. Uh, let me let me. Right. A lot of people, and, and I have the same problem. Though. They're like, "Oh, you're from Boston? Oh, cool. Back. Where are you from?" And then I tell them, and they're like, "Oh." Because they're from some suburb and they're afraid of, you know, the black neighborhood in Boston that they heard they're going to get hurt in. Like, get out of my face. You're not from Boston. Go sit down. Like, this is not your city. So, <laughs> but, but, it, but so when you see all this stuff about like the sports teams and the this team, those sports teams are for the whole state, for the whole region, for New England, for like six state shit. Right. So, so the people that are coming in to support them and to represent Boston, quote unquote, I'm not from Boston and I get, they have nothing else to represent because what are you going to say? Well, I'm from Winthrop. Like, what is that? Right. Like good for you. So yeah, you want to rep Boston, but you're not from Boston and you don't know your way around Boston. You couldn't find anything and you're not from here. Right. And so I think there's also that. Um, and the few like people that things that are represented about Boston that are from Boston. Yes. That's fine. I'll give it to those people from Southie. They are Bostonians, but they certainly, you know, back in the day before they got gentrified out and they don't live there anymore, they certainly didn't come into the rest of Boston. And there are a few neighborhoods in Boston like that, that the rest of Boston doesn't think of as Boston. Um, We don't go to. So... Because I'm getting an education here, I wasn't expecting. I, I, I I was no, no, it's 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 all good. Do not apologize for imparting knowledge. (laughs) Should never apologize for imparting knowledge. Um, I'm saying I'm getting an education, whatever, because I I know that you can't look at entertainment as 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 like a means of your sole source of education, and I and I personally I don't. But at the same time. Um, it influences you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Media your, definitely has an yeah, impact on you, whatever. So, but the the, the, the question I'm going to ask. Well, and then you add in Larry Bird and the franchise and those, you know, and I get it. I, I was, was going to take it a step deeper, though, because what you, what you to consider, like, some of the, the bigger stars in Hollywood, um, uh, as far as white male leads, are mm-hmm. from Boston. You have Matt Damon, you have Ben Affleck, you have Mark That's Wahlberg. So, so I'm going to stop you right there. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are not from Boston, and that's the other problem. Yeah, okay, well... People that, that's... refer to them as being from Boston, but they are from they are from, they are from from cities near Boston, but they are not from Boston. So that, and, oh, okay. They did not go to Boston for the schools. They don't know anything about Boston. If they come to Boston, they come and they get on the train and they go downtown and they leave. That's like somebody who comes to D.C. and goes to the mall and walks around and sees the Smithsonian's and goes to, you know restaurants and then leave they don't know dc they've never been anywhere like if you say the big chair they're like what's that like you talking about where uh, where lincoln sits like now i I can't i don't know i can't speak for them now i can speak for mark Wahlberg because i actually know like literally what house where he lives Mm -hmm. so he is from boston he's from dorchester he's from a whiter neighborhood in dorchester so when he lived there but they moved out of there I mean, his mother, his mother was a, a midwife, a nurse, um, mm-hmm. and she's from an institutional neighborhood in Boston. She was at a hospital in a neighborhood in Dorchester, my same neighborhood, but a different part of it. Like I said, it was, it's a bigger neighborhood. Um, and, you know, they are very entrenched from Dorchester. They are very much from that neighborhood. And, and all of that is true. Um, and, but he left by the time he was 16 or something like that because he's, his, career, his brother's career had already taken off. And they had the money and then his career took off. And I would say they're the last ones to move out of Boston because strangely enough, I live near a lot of them growing up. So, and of course I was a fan as an eight year old. So I know literally where their houses are. Mm -hmm. Um, And they went to the pizza parlor near my house, like within walking distance. So, but all of them had sold their houses and moved off into suburbs. Um, 
Jordan and John had they, their brothers that literally lived around the corner from me and they donated their house. Um, they had a, their family had a beautiful house. Their mother was a foster mother and they actually have a black brother who was friends with my neighbor. <laughs> um, so he stayed living in the house when they all moved out. Um, and then eventually they donated the house to like one of those like kind of orphanage type help make children something. I don't know. Um, and it became, cause it was a very large house. Um, it became that and they donated it to that. And they, as far as I know, live like bought a ranch, like three hours. One of them bought a ranch, like three hours outside of the city, way out in the, in the countryside going towards New York. Like they, they left the city, um, pretty quickly after, like once they were teenagers, um, and in their twenties, they, they were gone. I would say that the Wahlbergs stayed longer and they haven't moved as far. They've moved from what I've seen on the TV shows. Um, they've moved like to the South shore, which is where all the white people from those areas in Boston went to during white flight. So that's, they kind of follow the pattern of where Irish white Irish people of their economic ilk, of status their went anyway. Right. Like even without the money, that's where middle-class white people moved to when they left Boston. So it all kind of fits. Um, but what people don't remember is all the black people that are from Boston. Like Guru is from Roxbury. Oh, yeah. All Premier. the musician is from Roxbury. Yeah. Bobby Brown and his trifling ghetto ass is from Roxbury. Um, Minister Farrakhan is from Roxbury. Malcolm X got his conversion in prisons here in Massachusetts and grew up running the streets before that in Roxbury, even though he's not originally from here. But that's where Detroit, his aunt was living when D. he was sent there. Yeah. I work with his nephew. Right. So like his homes are the home. His family home is still there in in um, in that neighborhood on Humboldt street. So people forget those connections because for whatever reason, that's not what's memorialized about Boston. Well, I, those people are very much from Boston. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I do at um, least know that the backstreet, I mean, by new kids on a block new, who considered like the first boy band, which is some BS because they patterned themselves they're not. off a of new edition. And new edition is from Boston. I know. And, but they, they, they came up doing covers <laughs> of new edition. Producer, the guy that did them did new kids on the block yeah yeah and they did covers of new edition and that's how they blew and up and also kid and play um um what you call it has a barber shop he was part of the redevelopment of one of uh, a really important section of redevelopment in a neighborhood in roxbury called dudley mm -hmm. um that's actually studied by urban urban studies all over the country because it's a neighborhood that um redeveloped itself mm -hmm. on its own and they have a land trust and um, they have a very complex and interesting thing. You should actually look it up. Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, DSNI. It's fascinating. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating what they did. Um, and also before busing and all those other things that happened, black parents in Boston got together and, and they had their own solution for DSEG. Before DSEG happened, they got together and they formed a, an unprecedented um, program that's still running that's studied by education people in education all the time called Metco, where they actually went out to the suburban schools and said, look, we want better schools for our children. We think that you should have some diversity and that you might value that. Would you open some seats to our children and bust them out there to come to your schools? Because obviously your schools aren't going to desegregate based on natural process because black folks are not going to move to these neighborhoods or don't have the wherewithal to move to these neighborhoods or what have you. But what you could do is you could bring students from where they're, where they're schools. And they did. And those schools are still paying 40, 50 years later, 
to bus um, black and Hispanic students into their school systems because they find it valuable to have diversity. And of course, they have black people that live in those neighborhoods in those cities now, too. But this is a widespread sought after program that parents put their kids into. And the waiting list is as long years and years long. Their kids getting off the waiting list like in 10th grade and they're like, oh, I'll take it. OK. Um, and this was all community driven um, by parents from Roxbury, run by black folks, still run by black folks. Um, for black folks to help their children have a better opportunity. And this was two or three years before any of the rulings came out and any of the DSEG stuff even happened in Boston. So I think people also don't look at that part of it. And if you want to go back really historically to a couple hundred years ago, when you want to look at um, the abolition movements, all of the abolitionary, you know, the, the, the newspapers that were being published, um, William Lloyd Garrison, those other things were coming out of Boston. Um, the Underground Railroad stops in Boston were extremely militant. You would love them. Um, I know you would get a kick out of going to the, um, the, the museum in Boston up on, which is now uh, right next to the State House and, you know, a very posh neighborhood. But back mm-hmm. then it was, um, it was the Free Black neighborhood. And one of those homes is one of the first Free Black public schools. Um, they created their own school there. The first, the Freemasons, Prince Hall Lodge, that was established here in Boston by Prince Hall. Um, so you have a lot of that history that people do not recognize that does come from Boston. Now, the again, because we have a huge immigrant community here, I think that the African-American, historical African-American community that has its roots in Boston gets overshadowed by the immigrant community. So there aren't as many people to continue telling those stories, mm-hmm. um, but they do exist. And of course it's also three, 400 years ago. So to find ancestors of those people in the 54th regiment and all those other things is going to be harder as you get further and further away in generations 54th and people mass. Actually move all over the place. You just but, watch glory. <laughs> yeah. But what, so you, you will, you would love, so there's a story about um, the Underground Railroad and one of these homes, uh, I believe it's on Joy Street in, in um, Beacon Hill, which is the neighborhood. Um, they, the, the Fugitive Slave Act had been passed and they were starting to try to enforce it in the North and say, okay, we know you have this person, you have to give them back because the Fugitive Slave Act, blah, blah, blah. And whoever the black man, so the, the Underground Railroad was at a home that was owned by a black person. It wasn't a white person hiding black fugitive slaves it was a black person taking care of black fugitive slaves in boston Mm -hmm. and when they came with their little act saying that they were going to they had to recover this person and this property and blah 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 he said well you see that right there that's a keg of powder and you can either leave or we can all blow up right now but you're not getting him Mm -hmm. and they left they were like okay we're not fucking with these black people in boston because they're crazy Mm -hmm. and they left and they did not go for their fugitive slave they did not get their person they did not arrest anybody he stayed there safe and sound, and then they ferried him up to Canada. And so that part of history doesn't get highlighted as much as it should. Just like people, for whatever reason, don't know that Christmas Attucks was Black and Native American, because we don't talk about Native American people. So everybody knows he was Black. Well, maybe not everybody, but I think everybody knows he was Black. Yeah, he's known um, as the first Black um, man to die in the um, first right, black person right, to die. He's the first person to yeah, die yeah, first in the Revolutionary person, yeah, War also. in the Boston Massacre, and he was actually half Native um, Indian. Know where I and learned that? that? Part is, is not really discussed. Know where I learned that? Where'd you learn that? Uh, the Museum of African American History and Culture. I just learned that Are you serious? La- last week. Yeah. Why did you just learn that last week? Hey, look, I'm, I, I, at Why least I can be honest. That's elementary school. I can be honest that that wasn't taught in my elementary school. That's 
crazy. So I think I had a different experience. And 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 a, a coworker of mine, the Spanish teacher at my school, also went to the same elementary school as me, the Hernandez. I don't know. I just had a unique blessing or something because we are always mystified by the stuff that people don't know. And we're like, how did you not know that? How do people not know anything about Native American history in this country? I have gone around to not just my students. They can't name which location in the country the tribes are from. All they can do is tell you the, the you know, the tribe from right here. Fine. They know that. Okay. Mm-hmm. The one that met the pilgrims, the Wampanoags. Great. You've all been to Plymouth Plantation, our little living history, you know, version of Williamsburg, mm-hmm. Virginia. And, and they can tell you that, but they can't tell you anything else. I'm like, so Navajo, what does that conjure for you? They're just looking at me blank. No, no Adobe houses, no Southwest, no, nothing. Okay. Sue, so, um, not really sure. So that doesn't conjure up the, with the planes and teepees? No, not so much. I mean, I'm not asking you for something really specific. I'm giving you big, huge language groups here. And people cannot answer me. They look at me like I am speaking another language. It is it's so disturbing. And, and I know that people talk about, like, these cultural inconsistencies and insensitivities in education. But I thank God, like, my, I didn't have that. Yeah, so I sat I in a grad class at Howard with somebody who said he came to Howard because... You know, he wanted to come in the black. Ex- and I'm like, yeah, black experience. I get that. That's why I became here. No, this boy was talking about he did not know that Egyptians were black. Well, a lot of people don't know Egyptians okay. are black because, you know, they keep it's- like having like, you know, movies with Tom Cruise and Brendan Fraser. And- but see, <laughs> but don't you and Richard Spencer saying that white people I'll built the pyramids. Send you a picture. I had a book of like the alphabet when I was, I don't know, three. When do you start looking at alphabet books? Right. Mm-hmm. With. Egyptians. And so every letter had a different image from hieroglyphics or some like activity with Egyptians doing it. And I so mean, you just you raised differently. That, that's a good way. I mean, like, like I'm, I'm not mad you know at I it. Mean, but once you look at a picture, it doesn't matter that somebody shows you a movie of Elizabeth Taylor. You should be able to be like, well, that's stupid. Yeah, well, they don't yeah, look I mean, in the pictures that they drew of themselves. Yeah, but it, it, it's, <laughs> it's easy to say. So, for example, I can I can I can sound snarky in that regard because right. from a very young age I was aware enough with regard to Egypt and like we did like in, in high school we did uh do like um hieroglyphics and stuff like that and decode I can't remember any of it now to be honest with you um so but we do that in elementary school okay like, well that, did, that was that was like, 10th grade for me sad. that was 10th grade for me I remember wow. doing that so um we we did we we did cover it <laughs> just apparently later than you did you know what I'm saying but we also didn't have like you know bilingual I mean, like me sad it makes me sad too because now i feel like, like you know what i'm saying i gotta have like a cultural like thing like war with you like after we get off this microphone and i'll lose uh but it's okay um because well, nobody I, will hear it I, <laughs> nobody would hear it it'll but never I, see but, the light of day but you know what i mean like i i but, but even if you didn't have it and i and i that that makes me sad for somebody that doesn't have it but i feel like apart from that and i get it if the only time you've ever seen egyptians has been the media then yes you're going to have some really mixed up wrong conceptions. But actually, but actually, once you've seen a museum, and I get that not everybody goes to museums, right? But this is a person who's doing a master's. So I'm thinking that at some point you've gone to a museum. I'm hoping that you didn't need as an adult for someone to bring you somewhere. The internet existed by then, right? Like, that you still are believing white people? Like, what? what Okay, so actually... What That's what slavery and the Kool-Aid is just a whole nother issue. Yeah, yeah. So actually what we're going to do here, we're gonna, I'm, I'm actually going to wrap this interview up, but I wanted to do a bit of a summation before I did that. Um, um, I think you said so many things, be, like there, there were things I wanted to just like, like add a little... all over the place. 
no, no, no. And it's fine. That's 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 what happens when you have a conversation. It's a learning process or whatever. You get a chance to speak, get a chance to listen. So um uh, for me, it's just like one of those things. You said a lot of just like very poignant things. And I think one of the things you kind of said, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but basically what you were getting at was like you came up uh, with a culture that wasn't quote unquote American as a white person specifically or somebody who mm-hmm. would be viewed from the outside as white. And you didn't right. see yourself as quote unquote white. Didn't even realize it at a at, at a young age because you were around right. all this I different... Even above that, I didn't see myself as American, Mm -hmm. and in my upbringing, we associated white with American, or American with white. Right, so So that in and of itself... Even black American was different and not American in the the strict sense, right? That in and of itself, though, because you were able to, like, you know, interact with... Uh, your Spanish teachers and uh, your, your, you know the teachers who taught you mm-hmm. all this culture and all this language, and you're able to interact with these kids with uh, darker skin than you, whatever, and nobody was tripping, and you were, you were able to basically look at things from a more inclusive and more informed mm-hmm. perspective. And I think your upbringing is actually what is key to actually fighting the racism that a lot of us are trying to get at, because there's so many people who don't have that experience. So I think that well, in and of racism is, is, is an issue of black people, and white people have to fix it. It affects black people, but it's not black people's issue. Oh yeah, because we didn't create it. We white people. Yeah, we didn't create it. It's not constant. We created. Right. If white people are never in an environment to fix themselves, then yes. So if people were raised like I was, then they would have no choice but to have a different perspective, right? But until that starts to be more common. I don't, I mean, and I don't know that that would fix it completely because again, I have students who went to the same school and they're not quite, <laughs> they haven't quite gone over as far as I have. No, but it's, it, but it's a it. start but, you know, though. It's kind of like, certainly have, right. It's like the, Amer- it's like the affordable, uh, care act. It's not perfect. Social security is not perfect. And it's been around for decades now. It's not perfect, but, but it's something. Yeah. Yeah. It's something in it and, and it, and it helps. Now, could it be better? Right. Could we find ways to improve it? Yeah. We could fix Social right. Security right now. Two ways. One, we take away that ridiculous cap where it stops at $118,500, and we raise that cap to a minimum at no, no less than two fifty. dollars um, But I think, you like, you know, at least for the first million, you should be kicking in on Social Security. Um, but right. um, also, like, that 6% cap on it, if you raise it over the next 10 years, a, a, a court, um, a one-tenth of a point, a percentage point or whatever, up to seven, that would make Social Security solve it indefinitely. But nobody wants to do that. And it's something that you can easily do, easily fix. But because we have jackasses in office, that's a whole other thing. I went on a tangent. And I think, ho- but I think that's everything. A lot of problems are easy to fix. People don't want to do it. Yeah, people yeah. are lazy or they're comfortable. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a fa- well. Really, what it is is the people that are 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 making the most noise about it are the least informed and the least affected. Well, right. You know, it's easy to vote, so it's, it's it's easy they vote to and they fund. Yeah, yeah. But it's easy to make a statement where you say something like black on black crime. Well, in reality, there's no such thing as black on black crime. <laughs> thing, it's crime. Right? 
It's crime. If you say black on black crime, then you have you're intimating without saying it that there has to be other types of crime. There has to be a white on white crime and right. Asian on Asian crime. It's crime, yo. Right, and that it somehow doesn't happen in the other groups. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, every group hurts themselves. It's your group. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you don't you, have crime is gonna be in your group. Come on now. Yeah, you tend to affect and be affected by those who live closest get on a to plane you. Plane to go commit some crime? No, you're gonna do it next, like with the people nearby. Yeah. So I mean, uh, as always, uh, Jennifer, I, I have a blast <laughs> talking with you, um, and uh, we're gonna have to sit down again. I, I'm actually gonna have to um, um, get you on the the, the show, the Usual Suspects, for a sit down too, um, especially if you happen no to be problem. in town sometime soon. But um, I want to thank you so much. One last thing. One last thing. Um, mm -hmm. Barefoot. Very quickly, wh yeah. wh wh where does the barefoot come in? Because like people might think that's a nickname. I thought it was a nickname until recently. So like, <laughs> where does barefoot come from? I like my student today who looked at me with six eyes. He was like, "Who? What? Why are you calling you that?" I was like, "It's my name." He's like, "No, hold up, hold up. Wait a minute." So barefoot is my last name. I have two last names. One from my mother. One from my father. My mother is a barefoot. I'm a barefoot. Um, so my my grandfather is from Oklahoma, and he didn't grow up with his father, who is the barefoot. Um, senior because his father died a week before he was born. And, um, but what we do know or what they do say, so his mother, my great grandmother was a Sooner. Um, for those who don't know, that's why the Oklahoma Sooners are called Sooners because that refers to the white people who were in Oklahoma in what was then Indian territory sooner than they were supposed to be, i.e. before it was open Safe. to white people for settlement. <laughs> they were sneaking in and living with the Indians quote-unquote, um, and so she was a sooner. She was there in Indian Territory illegally, and his father was a ranch hand, a what his family all referred to as an Indian from Texas, mm -hmm. and he came across the border from Texas to Oklahoma, and that, my great-grandmother, they got married. Um, uh, they had two daughters, and then when my grandmother was, my great-grandmother was pregnant with my grandfather, he my great-great-grandfather passed away. So I just know that he was a Cherokee Indian from Texas who came. Um, my grandfather, his mother remarried, and he has some half-siblings, and they refer to him and his sisters as the Indians. They have always done so. Um, his sisters married uh, full-blood um, Native people from the Oklahoma area. Uh, their children are actually in the tribe and on the rolls. Um, I'm not. My mother's not. I don't know if we qualify based on the random laws that the United States has to dispossess some people of some things and others of other things. So, you know, to be Native American is a lot harder than to be black or other races. Um, it's not advantageous to the U.S. government to give people back more land and rights. Um, so you have to be like one eight and be on an Indian roll. And my grandfather tried to find the Indian rolls from the family member um, that the Cherokee comes from, but uh, he got sort of hit a dead end in Tennessee or South Carolina or something um, when he was looking back into the history. But actually, the Cherokee supposedly comes from a different side of the Barefoot family that were um, a, a Cherokee woman who married into the Clarks. So it's not even from the Barefoot. Um, we are not sure if the Barefoot word is... My family, some of them think it was Norwegian, that it was Bareford, and it got changed to Barefoot to sound more American in the early part of the U.S. history. I don't actually have proof of that, so I don't know. Um, I do know that if I look it up on the census, that there is some 
in the very early part of America, the late 1600s, early 1700s, there were people coming from um, sort of like England, Scotland, Wales area. I'm not sure which particularly, but somewhere from that area with the barefoot name. And it was somewhat common uh, for a very small, short time for a few years there. So I believe that Barefoot, the name itself, even though it's not very common, is actually some kind of an English name mm-hmm. of some sort from one of those areas. And that um, either it's the story my family tells that they were Norwegian and Barefoot sounded bad and Barefoot sounded more, quote unquote, American or Aryan. So they changed it to that. However, they, they you know picked a name that didn't really survive much in the U.S. So 300 years later, it doesn't sound very American but maybe in the 1700s it did uh, for wherever they lived, for whatever reason. Or maybe that's a myth and they were actually um, some kind of an English group that were named Barefoot and came over. We just, we don't know. Okay. Um, but it's that side of my family that's Cherokee, and since that sounds like what people think stereotypically is a native name because it's like some kind of a story name that tells something about you, um, but it's not. I don't, we don't know the name of the Cherokee person, um, like that her, her, her surname. We know her name was Clarissa or that her, the child's name was Clarissa from the native person, but we don't know what the mother's name was most likely because, uh, they didn't want to keep a record of a white man marrying a Cherokee person at that time. Okay. That's the best, the best record. My grandfather who on computers came out, made himself computer savvy and, tried to look stuff up on the internet. Okay. Has anybody ever confused you uh, or, 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 or described you as being not thorough? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So what was the concise... Tell me so I can learn. Let me learn something. What would be the concise answer? Now that I gave you all the backstory, what part of it would have given you the answer that would have been sufficient and um, told you what you were looking for? The the barefoot family comes from my grandfather's side of the family, my mother's father. Oh, that's it. I mean, I mean, like, like, I mean, if you want to give, like, no, 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 no. I like, here's the thing. I appreciate a good, a good, a good retelling. Uh, like, regale me with the story, Dan. So you just wanted to know that it was a name, not a nickname. That it's my actual last name on my license. What? What? No, that would like look. That kind of would answer the question. Again, I like you. You didn't know what you were going to get when you asked questions of me. Well, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to get when I ask questions of anybody. But it, it, it's mm-hmm. cool. I didn't have an expectation one way or the other. And I'm not mad at your answer. I think your answer is fine. Oh, no, no. The I whole know. thing might not make it for editing purposes. I don't know. Right. That's what I tell you. No, but I just wonder what people do expect. Because I do get these looks like, okay, I don't think that's what I was asking. But damn. No, okay. no, no. You, you um, gave the answer. You just gave more than the answer. Right. Which is, there's nothing wrong with that. No, you know what I'm saying? I'm asking is what do regular people expect like so if that was the answer regular people expect now i know i'm not saying i'm gonna do that well, i'm, I'm not a regular motherfucker so i can't tell you but. <laughs> but, <laughs> i i imagine like you know for listening purposes for a podcast if somebody's in the car they probably right. just like, oh like yeah because honestly i thought it was like okay like i thought it was like native american once you said like oh it is my last name I'm like okay it's probably native american then that's what i was thinking right. but like well, I, I grew up always saying my short answer growing up was it's, um, I'm ne- well, cause people didn't ask me my name. They asked me if I was, so they would hear my name and ask me if I was Indian or native, mm-hmm. depending on their, you know, nomenclature. And I would say, I'm sure I am, I am Indian. I am native. I am Cherokee, but it's not from the name barefoot. And they'd be like, Oh really? 
wait, what? And I'm like, well, it's from the barefoot side of my family, but not from, but from someone else on that side of the family, from the maternal side of the family. I feel I feel like I feel like there there's like an insulting like you know a joke about uh uh transferring across across a large body of water that I can make in this moment for barefoot why they're called barefoot. It's like it's like it's like the okay, not, go ahead. No 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 I don't want to. I'm just I just feel like I feel like it's like you know how like people try to call people wet back. You know what I'm saying? It's just I feel like like the barefoot thing like there's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> okay. No, nah, no, nah, you know just like funny? people always people always ask me like did I get made fun of? And I didn't. No one ever paid attention to it. So this is the other thing that I will say, which you could probably edit it into some other part of the podcast because the in between is not as interesting. But um, you know what's really interesting is that and, and maybe it's just my experience again, like I said, I, I, I had a blessed experience. I was at a really great school, family oriented, whatever, whatever. But no one made fun of me. No one had issues with me being, you know, the only people that were ever mean to me in my life that have ever really made fun of me and picked on me have been white people. Black people are just not like that. And I don't want to say that as a generalization. Of course, there's mean black people and whatever else, right? Mm-hmm. But um, when I went to Howard, um, a lot of my really old, because my, my mother's side of the family, you can't kill these women. Mm-hmm. They live to like 95, 9702. Like they just, they just out here being nosy for, for the, for the struggle. They're not, they're not giving up. Um, and so, so they were like in their eighties or nineties or something when I went to college and they were just kind of like a little worried. They were like, so do people treat you well? Like, like, you know, what is it like, like going to an all black, like, Oh, that's an all black school, isn't it? Okay. So, so, so are you okay there? And I'm like, I'm fine there. I had problems with the white people at Milton Academy. I had problems with the few white people that went to the Hernandez when I was really little. I remember some white kids that were mean to me that used to tease me. I have never had problems or very, very minimal problems with black people. Black people just, they're not, they don't have process. They're not, it's not, nobody's worried about all of that. And all this fear that white people, white America has of black America is so, I think, hilarious to all of us because we know black people don't have time for that shit. Like, Keep it moving. Like, just give them, give them, just, just stop killing black people. We good. We good with that. Like, <laughs> we'll be good with that. Can you do that? Because we're not trying to come out here and kill all the white people. Like, you know, maybe one or two people are on that. But for the most part, people busy. We got lives and shit. Like, we got stuff to do, kids, jobs. Ain't nobody coming around to kill all y'all because you're ignorant. Like, go sit in your little country place and be ignorant or your rich city apartment and be ignorant whatever just don't kill me just don't mess with my life just you know like let me get paid the same and and live my life and and white people really think racist or not well-meaning or not they really think that that black people are out there on some revenge tip on some anger white hatred tip and really there's a very limited number of people who are like that and even those who are for the most part keep it to themselves or do it in a way that is much more polite and intellectual in my experience um, than white people and their virulent hate. And that to me is also speaks volumes. Um, You know, and we, we could argue on whether or not that's because historically black people know, you know, it's not safe (laughs) to come out and do a little bit, be a little bit extra, um, but I think it's also really when you've been oppressed, when you've been discriminated against, it's not something you want to run around and do to somebody else necessarily. Like, 
you know, or I, I don't know what the reason is, but I don't feel that kind of hate and anger and ven- like nastiness that you see coming out of white people when they are mad, backed in a corner, feel that they're losing all this alt-right bullshit. Like it, the cycle, the psychology behind the the issues that white people have is so deep and so crazy and literally so fucked up. And they're the ones that think that black people have all this stuff that is going to happen. And it's, and it's like, you know, so little of how this really works that you are, again, it's all your, it's all a white people's problem. This racist stuff is all them. It's all your mind is manifesting all this shit because you know, you're guilty and you know what you're doing is and have done is fucked up. So you're scared. And in in reality, you should be scared, but in practicality, you don't need to be scared. (laughs) Like, you would think someone would need to be scared based on logic because it kind of would say, okay, yeah, you know, after all of this, something, you know, as a Jamaican saying, the, the, you know, soon enough, the bottom of a drop. So like the bucket will eventually get saturated and the bottom of the paper cup is going to drop out. Like it's going to eventually give way. Right. So after all of this history, it's eventually going to, something's got to happen. And that's got to be in the back of the mind of all of these like alt-right white people and not even just them. Like, right. Even my well-meaning 90 something year old great aunt, I think that was behind her. Like, Oh, how do people treat you at Howard question? And, and the actual astonishment that everyone had when I was like, and I don't have any problems. No one cares that I'm there. And those who do, you know, don't talk to me and keep it moving. Like if they have a problem with it, maybe they do, but they don't make it a problem for me. You know, they don't have, you know, maybe they're mad at Howard for letting in more white people. Maybe they're mad at me personally, but it's not like they're going to come hurt me or do anything or even say anything, you know? Um, and, and I don't know. I just, that that's always been the one sort of aspect of what white people don't get about black people in America that, has fascinated me because it's the question that I get time and time again from white people when they hear that I went to Howard. Um, and I've never had it from black people because black people already know nobody's going to do nothing. No, no one cares. Like, you know. So right. anyway, me and my rambling again. It's all good. But. Last question. <laughs> Last question. I got one yeah. more. We talked about it already. But uh, Rachel Dozal, any quick thoughts? <laughs> One, you know, I have no quick thoughts, but two, I can't stand that woman. She needs to go somewhere and sit down. And well, she have, and apparently have she's got some nice employment issues. And some uncomfortable seats in a corner. Uh, 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 what I understand is she is uncomfortable because I, I think she's been unemployed for some time now. She's got a, 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 a baby. And <laughs> well, good. She, she's, right. she's living that other side that she was, yeah, I don't know. She could stay unemployed. But here, so here's the thing. My short, if I can make a short answer, my short response to anything about Rachel Dolezal She's full of shit. She's been full of shit. I don't know what her like purpose was or why she did what she did. But based on what we know, and you know, when I say we, Howard people, because mm-hmm. you know, we were, we were investigating that shit as soon as we were like, wait, so who, where? Hold up. Let me find out where, who knew her. I had people all over my Facebook like, has somebody come from that they have ever seen her? Does anybody have anybody in alumni relations? I, I need some confirmation that she actually went to Howard. I had people like everywhere, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, you know, we did our research and my problem with her is you went to Howard as a white person. You did not, you did not. So first of all, you're lying. Talking about you always thought this way, you crayon colored and all that other bullshit that was on some interview where she was crying about how she always thought she was black and this transracial shit she made up or whatever the hell it's called. Okay. You did not always think you were black. This is your backpedaling story now that you got caught. Because when you went to Howard as a grown fucking woman for a master's program, 
you did not think you were black. You were there as a white student. And she's you going sued there. She's... my alma mater for discrimination against you as a white student. So yeah. shut the fuck up, first of all. You did not, you've never thought you were black. You just decided at some point for whatever reason, and now you're going to do this. That's good. Great for you. Your bullshit about, oh, this is the way you could help black people. No. You could have helped black people. There's plenty of white people in some time immemorial who've been part of the NAACP. So, again, shut up. And you went to Howard. You understand black people. If you truly understood black people, you would understand how offensive what you are doing is. Because black people can't turn around, for the most part, and decide that they're going to be white tomorrow. And even if they can, the few people who could pass and who have passed in the, in the past live in absolute fear and terror that someone will find out that they aren't white and their world would fall apart. And not in the way that her world fell apart and she became unemployed. I don't know we care about that shit. But in the way that you will get killed and your children will be killed 50 years ago, forget 200 years ago when it was even more dangerous. So that in and of itself is such an insult and a slap in the face to anybody who says that they understand the black community or that they've been part of the black community that, that she just disgusts me to no point, to no end. Like, it just, just it makes me so upset. Um, I don't know a lot of white people that went to Howard. There was two or three when I was there. Um, besides myself, there were once three boys, four boys and a, and a girl from Alaska. But she was there for a program. She wasn't really there for the whole, like, understand black people thing. She... <laughs> we checked on her all the time to make sure she was okay because we don't think she knew what she was getting into or that she was even coming with black school. But she seemed to have some friends and she was happy. So that was good. Um, but the other three people that I knew, uh, I knew two of them more than just like seeing them. I'd actually had conversations with them and one I knew better than the other. And he, from my understanding, also grew up with black people in Virginia and, you know, liked was it was part of his like upbringing and what what have you i don't know how deep it was but um i think that was his process and why he came to howard um you know maybe he came for the girls i don't know <laughs> but um but he definitely came for the fact that he was already connected to the black community it wasn't like a hmm, let me see what black people are like and just show up right so i get the feeling from the few white people i know that went to howard and from myself that mm, i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that most white people who go to hbcus are doing so or at least in my time frame were doing so because they had some kind of an affinity understanding connection whatever to the black community and culture experience or what have you and everyone that I knew was equally, you know, as we now like to say, quote unquote, woke. So there was no one who was going to run around and do some bullshit like Rachel Dolezal. And every, you know, I, I haven't asked those white people that went to Howard because I'm not really in touch with them. But I would assume that they feel the same way that I do about her and think that that's some ignorant shit. Um, because it's just, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. And then for her to come back and keep coming back to campus like... Oh, no one wants you. Go away. Like, you lost your case. The, the art department didn't want you. Like, go away. Just, just stop. <laughs> just sit down. Stop. Right? You will. Your natural hair products, whatever. Like, you're doing the most. Like, you got your own problems. I don't know what they are. I don't know why you're mad at yourself. Um, but, you know. And, yeah, it is difficult. It is diff if you If you are part, if you are part of a culture that's not yours, and people may or may not accept you, and they have every right, to do that you know i'm not part i'm not black i'm not part of the the group as we speak social sociologically and anthropologically i'm not a, i'm not a member a group member so you group members 
in any society, in any in any situation, have the have the ability to accept members and not accept members and exclude members, even those who have a natural sort of right, if you want to call it, who are naturally part of the group, sometimes can be excluded by groups sociologically. So as an outsider of a group, you have no way to dictate whether you're going to be accepted or not and by whom. And, and, and how? you may not be accepted by and how and on what terms and you may not be accepted by everyone and you may not be accepted at all times and you may not be accepted in all ways. And you can't change that. And it's not your place to change that. And you don't have any say over that. Um, and you may not like that. And maybe she didn't feel comfortable with that. Maybe that wasn't good enough for her. Maybe she wanted more. Um, but my thing is, even if you want more, that's not how this works. Now, so the scary thing is it, what you just said. Was, it doesn't matter. The scary thing, what you said was very accurate and apropos. But I can I can hear in the back of my head as you were saying it, I can see a white nationalist making the same fucking argument. About black people in America. Yeah. I mean, I can I, I actually had that same internal thing happening in my head as well. But the difference <laughs> is that that is a nationality and that so so that to me that's different it is a group mm -hmm. but it's it's a group with power mm -hmm. and it's a group with power that has historically affected other groups and, they, and let's be real these are groups that have been created yeah right so mm -hmm. these are created groups and so at this point because a group has been created by force by trauma by oppression I'm sorry, they have the right to do and take and say what and however they want to include, disclude, sometimes on the side on a Tuesday include or whatever, who they want, when, how and where. And other groups do not. That's just, it's really just that simple. Um, and so I don't, I don't have a problem. But, but from a sociological standpoint, that's just natural um, that groups will and won't accept people in and out of them. And there are moments that you will be accepted and moments that you won't, even for members of the group, right? Um, there are moments when black people are made, oh, you ain't black. You ain't really black. Look what you're doing. Are you being too white? Are you being too this? And so we have those internal conversations in the black community all the time about what makes somebody black enough and, and, and that being a huge problem in, in and of itself to sort of say, oh, you can't be part of the group because you're not acting black. And what does that mean? And all of that is being created by the white majority and the issues that, that, the superstructure is imposing and the whole reason that anybody has to be more act more white or that there isn't acting white or an acting black has to do with outcomes and opportunities that people are trying to achieve and or where you've been raised. And so being those push and pushes and pulls are also another issue that white people don't have any say over, even though they've affected them and influenced them. And in most cases created the structures that made them happen. Um, but that's for black people to, deal with internally and if they don't accept you or they don't want to accept you or today they want to tell you you know like well you know one of our one of um one of one of our, my more colorful friends from um from freshman year um I remember her coming and yelling I was in Shay's room and the door was open and we were talking and I'm I'm quite loud um, I'm loquacious, but I'm also loud. So you can hear my long stories down the hallway, apparently. And she came down the hallway and she was like, Shay, tell your friend she's too loud to be black, uh, to be white. <laughs> mm -hmm. And everybody started laughing. And, and that's fine. She can say that. I can't say that because I don't get to dictate whether or not I'm part of the group or not. I don't get to dictate whether or not I fit a criteria or a stereotype or not. I don't get to dictate whether or not the stereotype is appropriate or not. 
or even fitting in the moment or not, because that's just how it is. And people need to get over their feelings. And that's why nobody worried about white people's tears and all this foolishness and how they feel. In the, no one cares. You didn't, white people didn't care when black people couldn't do certain things. So I'm so sorry that you can't use the N-word. Oh, my God, the world is ending because you can't use the N-word. I think that is the least of our big national problems. I think that's the least of our big historical problems. I think that's the least that you should be worried about, that you can't run around and do something offensive after, I don't know, you only brought a couple million people across an ocean, built your country off of their work, but now you can't use words that you used to use to put them down that they may want to use when how they choose. Get over yourself. Like, it is literally the most insane shit, apart from cheeto head being elected that i can think of like <laughs> it's just like there's no logic white america is so devoid of logic at times um and it's so funny because they accuse all the other groups of not being educated and not being civilized and all this other stuff they're the ones running around here with all kinds of emotions flying everywhere they need to put all that calm that down put it in a box let's let's use some thought here and understand that your little specious arguments and your ridiculous Fox News rhetoric, we all know it's not logical. We all know it's not intelligent. We know that you're not actually arguing a real position. You're just arguing because you can and you want to. But you also are intelligent enough to know that your argument is false. So why are we even having this conversation? It's just like, it's just ridiculous. And that's this Rachel Dole is all bullshit. She's ridiculous. She knows very well what she's doing. She's either absolutely insane, literally like medically insane and unhinged, which is a possibility, honestly, from some of the things we've seen. Or she knows exactly what she's doing and she's doing it because she's selfish. That's the reality. She doesn't want to deal with not being accepted on her terms. She doesn't want to be the like, sometimes you're going to be like, girl, you black. But sometimes you'd be like, girl, you ain't black. Stop it. Sit down. She doesn't want that. She wants to be able to be black all the time, not on someone else's terms. Well, that's too bad. You're not black. So get over it. Everybody has different experiences. You don't have a black one. As much as you identify with black people, as much as you have gone, as much as I've gone, lived with black people all my life, can speak all kinds of languages, accents, can go to other countries and people think that I'm from this thing or that place or whatever and understand culture and can school people on those cultures, even black people on those cultures. It doesn't make me black. It doesn't make me live through the experiences that black people live through. It does not make me have to deal with things that black people have to deal with in this country. So no, like, and for the little 10 years that she permed her hair and got to run around pretending to be a black person and pretending to know what it felt like to encounter racism and everything else. The difference was that she always had an out. She could always walk away. True indeed. Even if she didn't intend to walk away, she always had the ability to walk away. True indeed. And that is the inherent difference. That's and black Justin people do Timberlake not have the ability right to take their skin off when they feel like it's inconvenient. Yeah, that's that Justin Timberlake right They don't Timberlake have the ability right to take historical trauma away because they just tired today and don't feel like it. Well, look, and then we, you, that option doesn't exist. So her and her bullshit just pissed me off to the end. It's so insulting. Okay, so we're going to end on that note. Uh, if nobody else tells you in this lifetime, Jennifer Barefoot Smith, you are all right with me. Okay? Huh? You are <laughs> good hard. You are good with me. All right? And, uh, I'm I, all right with myself, so I'm always going to be good. And that's, that's what I think people don't understand. 
That's what's so, up, and you should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, right. in case you need that extra validation and verification, though, you you you're good in my book. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, once again, this is Jennifer Barefoot Smith that I have been interviewing. Um, of course very interesting conversation very interesting person I, I thank you so much for listening jennifer thank you for being a part of this uh interview process and uh i'm you gonna know. i'm gonna try to get you back on the show sometime in the near future if you're cool with that Cool. Of course you're cool with that. All right. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Again, this is Flash Black Radio Culture Shock. Uh, you can check us out on iTunes. You can check us out on Google Play. Check us out on SoundCloud. Please leave comments uh, on the SoundCloud uh, 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 apparatus, whatever. Just leave comments on SoundCloud. Also, check us out on the Facebook group and the Facebook page, Flash Black Radio. And also, check us out on the Twitters at Flash Black News, at Flash Black Radio, and of course on IG, Flash Black Radio. All right, so we appreciate your time, appreciate your energy, and please continue to tune in and check us out, share, discuss, all that good stuff. Until next time, stay beautiful, stay woke. Peace.